0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 18 this morning. Matthew 18, on this day after Christmas. I guess a week ago or two weeks ago, the thought was that, you know, are we going to have class on this day? Well, yeah. Doesn't seem right to cancel a Life of Christ Bible class. <laughs> you yeah. know, on the day after Christmas. Besides, in the holiday week like this, and next week maybe even, we'll have some extra people that have a work schedule, that allows them to be here, and, and all of that. So I appreciate that. All right. This is Life of Christ number 186. How about that? The numbers just keep going up, don't they? We are in episode, uh, we're in the, I don't have the number on this one. What episode is this? Galilean ministry number 53, okay. Where the disciples contend about greatness. And we're ready to tackle today, point D, the 90 and 9. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study today, and we we just thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for our Savior Jesus Christ, not only for his birth, Father, the uh, the, the birth and humility in the manger and all of the things associated there. We're thankful for that, Father. He did come sinless, born of a virgin, and that qualified him but his continued life of sinlessness his obedience before you his uh, preparations to go and accomplish the work that he accomplished on the cross father it is for that that we are eternally grateful and we thank him praise you for all that your son means to you and all that he means to us in jesus christ's name we pray amen all right i actually did myself a favor by chopping down the uh, outline and by doing that I uh, don't have the context to give you point D. So if, if you need that context, I can I can hunt it down for you. Otherwise, uh, we'll just move on. Do you need that context? Disciples contend about greatness. Let me just put it up here again. Maybe I need the context more than you. How about that? I thought it would be simple to just simply Chop it down and leave ourselves at subpoint D. And I realize that we've got some folks here that aren't typically here. All right. So this is the uh, episode 53, as was mentioned, in the Galilean ministry. The outline numbers will start over again when we conclude the Galilean ministry and move on to the Perean and last Judean ministry. And that's coming up very quickly. We're, we're approaching the end of the Galilean ministry. This is actually not a single episode, this episode is a series of events. It is a series of events. And if you have a a modern uh, text, New King James or NIV or New American Standard, in Matthew 18 you can kind of see that because you have paragraph headings throughout. You've got rank in the kingdom. You've got stumbling blocks, uh, the 90 and 9, the disciples in prayer, uh, forgiveness. So you've got these paragraph headings all throughout Matthew 18. And you can see that there's a series of events here. And so I gave that to you under main point one. This single episode is actually a series of events, and the theme that underrides all of them, the, the common thread to everything in this chapter, is humility. A series of events which all center on the need for humility, where you're talking about the disciples arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. He says, You guys need humility. Forget about greatest. The greatest will be the most humble. Uh, the issue with stumbling blocks, the issue with 90 and 9, and all of this, it centers on humility, and we'll see that. At our point two, then, we focused on Matthew's events, where we had an A, a B, and a C. A was uh, the disciples arguing about greatness. B was Christ illustrating with a child. He brought a child in front of him and set them there as the example. Some subpoints and in application we went through. And then C was the warning about stumbling blocks. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. And that's kind of a general woe that addresses the whole cosmos. This cosmos is filled With stumbling blocks. What kind of world do we live in? We live in a world of stumbling blocks. It's the nature of the cosmos as it has been crafted and shaped by the God of this age uh, in terms of that. All right. So that's the context then that we've dealt with over the past few weeks, which brings us now to today's outline where we deal with point D, the 90 and 9. So this is under main point 2, Matthew's events, Matthew's order of events, uh, when we get to 3, we'll deal with Mark and Luke's additional information. But the bulk of this study comes out of Matthew 18. All right, the 99. Let's read it. It's verses 12 through 14. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety and nine, which have not gone astray. So it is not the will, so it is, in verse 14, not the will of your Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones perish. All right, it's important that we get the context for this. There's actually a total of eight items we're going to get out of these verses. And uh, if we can knock it out in uh, just a few minutes, then you'll have an early day of it and and consider that a Christmas gift. If it takes us four hours to go through it, that uh, you're going to be here quite a bit this afternoon. How about that? And some things we want to get out of this. Now, this is not a separate paragraph that's just out of place, not doesn't belong in this chapter. It's, it's intrinsic to this chapter. It belongs exactly where it's placed in this chapter. And you'll note, as it's tied together there in verse 14, one of these little ones we still have in view... What, what do we still have in view? We still have this child in view, the one that he brought in front of everybody and said, All right, now look at this child and uh, become like this child. If you're not humble like this child... Uh, is humble, then uh, you're going to have issues here in terms of divine discipline coming upon you. So we've not left that realm. We've not left the realm of context. We've not left the realm of humility. See, even when he tells this uh, story of the ninety and nine, it's a parable. It's not, uh, we're not to take it literally. We're not to assume that there was truly a man there with a hundred sheep who, who, who lost one of them. It is a parable that, that gives, a, for instance, gives an illustration and teaches the principle. And that's what we want to glean out of this parable. We've, we've had parables multiple times throughout the book of Matthew. All right. Point one, this message is also given in Luke's parable triad of Luke 15. This message is also given in Luke's parable triad of Luke 15. Now, lots of people try to find a, cha- a title for Luke 15 and everyone fails, including myself. All right. All um, right. This is my feeble attempt at it, Luke's parable triad. Okay? Some people call it the, uh, as, and we'll get to that, in the Perean ministry. That's coming up. The Perean ministry, event number 23. Once we conclude the Galilean ministry, we're going to be in the Perean ministry. The Perean ministry is uh, the final uh, few months from the fall to the spring, uh, and then we get to the last Judean ministry of Christ and the Passion Week and the events leading up to his death. So we're very quickly going to be in the Parian ministry. Well, event number 23 in the Parian ministry, if you follow the, the Harmony of the Gospels, is Luke 15. And there is a triad, a parable triad. That's how I call it, a parable triad. And I might change it between now and then. But anyway, this is my feeble attempt to give the chapter a title. Some people call them three separate parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, right? Or the prodigal son. The truth is, it's all the same parable. There's only one parable in that chapter. It's told three different times. It's told with three uh illustrations or three uh metaphors, three mechanisms by which the concept gets across. But it's the same parable. It's the same doctrine, it's the same principle that's being illustrated there. So I simply call it the uh uh parable triad of Luke 15. And uh that may not be all that glamorous and probably uh, uh, isn't all that impressive or anything, but at least it's mine. And so I can trademark it and copyright it, and if anybody else wants to use it, they have to pay me the royalties for a parable triad of Luke 15. Anyway, the content here about having a 100 sheep and one of them is gone, and so you leave the 99, you go and you find the one. It's a story that he tells multiple times. It is likely that the Lord delivered this message repeatedly to his disciples during this time. It's, it's, there's no question in my mind that as the Lord was approaching the cross, he's already started to try to prepare them for this. He's already told them, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. The chief priests and the scribes are going to put me to death. And, and the disciples are having a hard time with that, especially Peter. We already saw in Matthew 16, just two chapters earlier, he said, Far be it from thee, this shall never happen to you. And so the Lord had to say, get behind me, Satan. Remember, he's preparing them for the cross. He's, he's within about six months of the cross. And they're not ready. All right? So I, I speculate, and I think it's likely, that this was a message they got a number of different times. He told it to them on this occasion, when he had the child there on hand to illustrate with, but he told it to them again on the, on the occasion of the Prian ministry there, when he gives them the parable of the prodigal son and these other two aspects to it. I think he gave it to them repeatedly. When you glance over to John 21, you see that he has hit these apostles with a heavy shepherding emphasis. And I think he did so prior to the cross and after the resurrection. He continues to hit them with a shepherding emphasis. And so uh, this is after his resurrection and he's during the 40 days of his uh resurrection ministry on this earth and and uh he meets them here on the beach for a uh fish breakfast and uh when they had finished breakfast in verse 15 jesus said to simon peter simon son of john do you love me more than these and he said to him yes lord you know that i love you and he said to him tend my lambs there is a shepherding emphasis there that he was trying to get across to peter peter and all the apostles not just peter But all the apostles needed to have that emphasis on shepherding because they are very quickly going to have the Holy Spirit ushered upon them on the day of Pentecost. The church age is going to begin, and the great battle in the church age is the application of shepherding. Starting with the apostles and prophets, and then after the canon is complete, on to our present day with pastor, teachers, and evangelists. Are we shepherding the flock? And so he says, tend my lambs. In verse 16, he says, shepherd my sheep. (coughs) And then in verse 17, tend my sheep. And so three times there, the emphasis is on shepherding. And I believe that's what we have back in Matthew 18 now. And the the parable here with a hundred sheep. It is likely that the Lord delivered this message repeatedly to his disciples during this time. That we have an emphasis on shepherding. Secondly, the question, what do you think? The question, what do you think? It's a rhetorical device. We use it today. I use it. Maybe not as often as I need to use it. All right. We do do the question and answer time on Wednesday evenings, uh, but it tends to be one directional. It tends to be questions from the flock coming my direction. That's fine. I don't mind that. I, I, I like questions. I try to encourage questions during our question and answer time on Wednesday nights. But the Bible presents that the question and answers can go both ways that the teacher can actually utilize questions to the flock and use that as an instructive device. He says, what do you think? Alright, by asking what do you think, you're gauging the uh, doctrine and the maturity and, the, and, the, and everything with respect to your disciple. Not the only time the Lord's done this. In fact, He does it quite a bit. He said, who do the people think I am? Gets a bunch of answers that are all wrong. And then he says, okay, now who do you think that I am? And Peter actually got it right. It was was the shining moment for Simon Peter there when he said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus was able to praise him and said, ha-ha, you got it right. (laughs) First time, how about that? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and and everything else. So this question-and-answer method is fruitful. It also is um, completely uh, inadmissible in a court of law. And here's why. In legal proceedings, this would be objected to by the opposing counsel. This would be called leading the witness. Alright? And I'll show you how here in a moment. So point two, the question, what do you think? And the manner in which it is asked, lead the disciples to only one possible answer. There's only one way to answer this question. The way that it's asked, the way that it's phrased. This is an aspect of the syntax of the, of the uh, Greek language here, of the sentence structure for how it is phrased. <coughs> so what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, notice it's, it's any man, anyone would do this. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not, does he not? You see how that's expressed? That is so compelling because that's demanding the answer. Does he not leave the 90 and 9 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? See, the way that it's crafted and fashioned is leading to only one possible answer. You'd say, well, sure, of course he does. Anyone would. So it is an instructive question. It's what we call a rhetorical question. It's used with rhetorical effect. It's used to communicate and it's used to bring a person around to that conclusion. And it's, and it's useful. I mean, it's one thing to just simply make a statement, right? And say, for example, say, I come up here, and I can read a verse, I can say, God is faithful. And no one in this room would dispute that. You would all look at me and say, yep, okay, I believe it. The verse says it. I believe it. God is faithful. Or, I can bring up a situation in life. I can describe uh, the struggles of the Christian way of life. I can describe the anguish of of a broken heart. I can describe the human experience. And then I can ask you to answer the question about God being faithful. Right? And I can craft it in such a way where the the only answer is clearly yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. God is faithful, see, but by you answering it, by you creating the uh the motivation behind it, it becomes more vivid, it becomes more real, it becomes more personal all right and so we have the things there, and this is the this is the thing that happens in the in the process of a ministry, this is what happens over the course of of believers growing together and walking together in the lord and and uh and sharing the the victories and the defeats and the battles and everything else along the way see. She's not here this morning, but Shirley Newton's a regular at this class. And uh, I, I remember the the episode where her granddaughter was at the bottom of the pool. <laughs> and a two year old granddaughter, and we we brought her out of the pool and rushed her to the hospital, and and we're in the in the neonatal intensive care unit down there at, at Brackenridge Children's Hospital, and uh, we're we're praying and we're crying and we're 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 trusting in the Lord. We don't know what's going to happen and all that. And well, of course, it worked out. Very well, and and, uh, the child was fine, and she's a teenager today. So obviously this was years and years ago. But when you go through something like that, and you pray together like that, and and you're, you're in anguish and everything else, and then the answers to prayer come, see? And you have that shared experience, and I can talk to Shirley Newton a hundred times between now and the rapture, a thousand times between now and the rapture. And we can bring back the, the memories there of, of what the Lord did in Sophia's life. <laughs> and we can say, now, isn't the Lord faithful? Of course. And she can testify to that, and I can testify to that, and we might cry again. Who knows? Just in memory of how, how faithful he is. That's what we're describing here. That's what the Lord does with this. He says, What do you think? And he brings up a story. Stories communicate. And any man. Would do this. I think a lot of times when this parable is taught, it's taught and it's combined with uh, you know Psalm twenty three, or it's combined with John ten, the Lord is my shepherd, or I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so this passage gets taught where everything gets centered on Jesus Christ and what an awesome, wonderful shepherd he is. I think that's a mistake to take this passage that way, because yes, Jesus is a wonderful shepherd. Don't get me wrong. Psalm 23, John 10, First Peter, all of that. He is a wonderful shepherd. The good, the great, and the chief shepherd. But this text isn't celebrating the glory of Jesus Christ. This text says any shepherd would do this. Not just Jesus. Of course Jesus would do it. Yes, Jesus would leave the 99 and go get the one. Of course. Any shepherd would do that. Which is what it says here. It does not, uh, what do you think, if any man has a hundred sheep. Jesus isn't the only one that would do this. Anybody would do this. Alright. So the question, what do you think, and the manner in which it is asked, lead the disciples to only one possible answer. Thirdly, humanity may be content with a 99% retention rate. The God the Father standard is 100% safe and secure. This is what separates God from man. I've got to tell you. Humanity may be content with a 99% retention rate. But God the Father's standard is 100% safe and secure. I mean, to me, that's a whole message right there. Because in humanity, we get so relative in our thinking. We get thinking, well, okay, that's good enough. Right? ballpark figures close enough for government work or whatever you know we just get in this mindset that well okay that's pretty good that's right not bad not too shabby we'll take that because the world we live in is a world of imperfection <laughs> we live in a world that's just you know let's face it nothing's perfect to our human experience right so nothing's perfect so 99 percent, well that's, that's pretty good <laughs> That's better than I was expecting, really. That's better than I could uh, anticipate. Yeah, I'd be pretty happy with that. Yeah. You know, you start to think about anything. If you work in the realm of manufacturing and you make 100 widgets, right? And then you got your quality control and you inspect and whatever and you figure out, oh, you know what, there's a certain number of them that just went bad or whatever on the production line, can't use them. Would you be happy with 99%? yeah you just kind of figure, well there's going to be there's going to be a loss along the way. we just kind of our mentality gets used to that. That's not God's thinking. God's thinking is hundred percent and of course there's uh, there's a lot of application you can you can uh, clearly you can use this as a principle to uh, teach eternal security. you could use this as a principle to teach the aspect of of not losing your salvation, the aspect of because not just because of this passage. But because you take this passage and you relate it to John 17, that it's the Father's will that I lose not one of them and so forth, you, and you can bring this up, and not just, with, uh, not just with eternal security. How about with work assignments? What does the Father expect for me to accomplish in my work assignment? 100%. Everything he assigns me to do, that's not human. <laughs> human thinking doesn't go there. Human thinking actually already builds in a value system that says something's got to give. There's a give and take at work here, right? And if I'm going to get ahead in, in my career, well, then i got to sacrifice something else. And there's a lot of men that, that put their families up on that altar. And they sacrifice their marriages, they sacrifice their children, they sacrifice their family, and they say, well, you know, it's... Uh, just the way it is. It's the way it's got to be. If I'm going to accept this promotion, if I'm going to accept this career opportunity, well, it's give and take. And so you sacrifice the one to lift up the other. Or maybe you say, you know what, I'm going to pass on this promotion because my family has priority. All right? Which means that you're sacrificing career and lifting up this, but it's still an either-or mentality. God's viewpoint is not either-or. God's viewpoint is both-and. 100%. God wants you to accomplish 100% of His plan for you in your family life. He also wants you to accomplish 100% of everything He has planned for you in your career. 100% of everything He has planned for you in your church life. See, everything is 100%. So it truly becomes a uh, a picture there that has a lot of illustration and a lot of application. Now the parable pictures, a wandering believer. Planao is the verb. Number 4105, Planao. Used three times in this passage. Twice in verse 12 and once in verse 13. You know, for these three little verses, and you got this verb three times. The verb is Planao. P-L-A-N-A-O, Planao. That's where we get planet. The English word planet. They were the wanderers to the Greek astronomers. They couldn't figure out why they kept wandering around the sky that way. They said, there's something wrong with those stars. They look like the other stars, but all those other stars are fixed in their constellations, in their patterns, in their routes. It's predictable. And they can consult astronomers from the previous generation and astronomers from the previous generation and go back hundreds of years. And all of these astronomers have charted all of these constellations and their movements. And they're fixed. That's what they do. But but these other stars, these wanderers, didn't seem to do that. Sometimes they showed up in this constellation. Sometimes they showed up in that constellation. They didn't have any fixed routes. Or at least they didn't think they had any fixed routes. Truth is, they do. They're just a different route because they're not stars. They're planets. They're not balls of gas outside of our solar system. They're actually planets inside the solar system. Ancient Greeks didn't know that. They're looking up there with a naked eye. And they see these little pinpoints of light. And they all look like stars. Okay. The only ones that didn't look like stars were the sun and the moon. <laughs> Everything else looked like stars. Little pinpoints of light. So for the normal ones, they called them osterae. They called them stars. For the, these wanderers, they called them wanderers. Planets. And when, even after we figured out what they were, we just kept the name and kept calling them planets. All right. So that's the idea here of planal. And the idea of wandering. This is the realm of a believer who's off track. This is not an aspect of an unbeliever who needs to be saved. This is a believer who's not where he belongs. All right? Because the sheep, this one sheep, belongs where the other 99 are. This is not an aspect of an unbeliever who needs to get saved. Some people try to take it that way, and I think they mix their metaphor. Because the truth is, all all 100 of them are sheep. All 100 of them belong in the same fold, in the same in the same flock. So it's not the aspect of of uh, one of them loses their salvation or one of them isn't saved to begin with or any other such thing. These uh, these sheep picture believers. It's just one of them is 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 out of place. All right. So we've got the wandering in verse uh, 12 twice. What do you think? If any man has 100 sheep and one of them One of them has plana'od, let's just say, as a past completed action. So you've got a man, he he has a hundred sheep, but one of them has plana'od. Does he, this man, not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains? Very important, we'll talk about that mountains here in a moment. The place of safety, he's not just abandoning the ninety-nine to go try to fetch the one. And go and search for the one that is still presently... Wandering, planaoing. So he has planaoed, but he continues to planao. See? That's the aspect of leaving the plan of God. You don't just do it once. If you start to drift in your Christian walk, and maybe you have in the past or not, I don't want to it's not confession hour. I don't want anybody to get up here and tell me about the time you've spent wandering. But Let's say you have, and you can point to a day when it started. It didn't just happen that day. That wandering continued until such time as Jesus Christ faithfully brought you back where you belong. That's why it's used twice there in verse 12. So there's one who has gone astray, but the truth is, when you look at the, the rest of verse 12, he continues to be plenowing, he continues to be straying. And so in verse 13, if it turns out that he finds it. Now notice, that kind of seems up in the air, doesn't it? If it turns out that he finds it. That seems kind of iffy, right? It is iffy. Because maybe he will, maybe he won't. This uh, makes another difference in terms of describing, uh, taking this parable and saying that this parable is pointing to Jesus Christ. No, this parable is pointing to any man. It's pointing to any particular shepherd. Not With respect to Jesus Christ exclusively. But if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not been planaoing. See, we're not called to planao, we're called to follow. We're called to follow our shepherd, not to wander. Important distinction to make here. All right, point five. Leaving the 99 on the mountains. Does not risk them in the man's absence. Did you ever think this? I used to think this. I couldn't figure out why. You know, okay, so he's missing one. Uh, You're just going to leave the 99 there and go look for that one? What's it to keep these 99 from scattering 99 different directions? Okay? No, it's not like herding cats. (laughs) Okay? He's not just leaving them there to scatter. He's actually placed them in a secure location on the mountains. does not risk them in the man's absence. They are presumably in a secure sheepfold with a doorkeeper. Now, we do have a passage of Scripture that illustrates this, and that's over in John 10. So let's hold our finger there in Matthew 18 and look at John 10. A message that has not come up yet, by the way. Jesus has not yet delivered the great I Am... Message of John 10. We have these great I am messages still to come in uh, the harmony of the gospel study. Now, typically. Given the geography of ancient Israel at the time and, and even to this day, the aspect of shepherding, um, the mountains are not the place where you would feed, where they would pasture. They would pasture in a valley or in a pasture uh, near water, near, uh, near, because he has to lead them by the still waters. He has to feed them. They get led out to feed, to graze, into the pastures, into the meadows, and then they get led back for the night to the place of safety. And those tend to be at the higher elevations. They tend to be up higher. The higher elevations were not as suitable. Now, there can be valleys up high, don't get me wrong. There can be meadows up high. But typically, the resting place was higher than the feeding place. The feeding place was lower. The lower elevation had better vegetation, had better water. The higher elevation had less of that, and it also had more security. You could pen it in better, you could wall it in better. The shepherds had a higher view of uh, surrounding territory, and so forth. All right, so in John 10, we read about this doorkeeper here. He says, "True, in fact, even before verse seven, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber." You can say that today. You know, if the guy's coming in through the front door with a key, maybe he owns the place. Maybe he belongs there, right? But if a guy's coming in a back window because he busted it through and he's climbing in, he's got a mask over his face, and he's probably not the owner. Just saying. Those are, those are, the, those are the odds here. So the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens. Now notice that the doorkeeper is not the shepherd. You've got a partnership aspect there. There's a, a doorkeeper. And he's not a shepherd, but he he is in charge of the fold. He's in charge of the, the pen, as it were, or the fold. i use fold because fold is the one that's used in verse 1. And so you have a sheep fold and a doorkeeper. And the doorkeeper only opens the door for the shepherds. And so uh, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. See, what would happen is you would have... You could have multiple flocks in one sheepfold. You have a pen that's constructed there and it's large enough. And so you could have any number of flocks. Say you've got half a dozen flocks. And a variety of shepherds come in and they lead their sheep into the fold. And then the doors close and a doorkeeper. You can leave one doorkeeper there all night and the shepherds can go home. All right. And then in the morning, the shepherd, the, the six different shepherds come at various times or whatever the doorkeeper opens. And this is the amazing thing. They still do this to this day. They still do this to the day. I mean, You've got a thousand sheep in there or whatever. The one shepherd comes calling his sheep and only those sheep go out. The ones that belong to that shepherd. The other ones stay on, in the pen until they hear the voice of the shepherd they recognize. See, and so one, the first can come, the second can come, the third can come. And they sort themselves out, recognizing the shepherd's voice. They still do this this day. So uh, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Again, the difference between sheep and cattle, it's not a cattle drive. It's a sheep leading and the shepherd goes in front and the sheep follow. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. All right. So then we get to verse seven. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now he's going to use the door as a metaphor for himself. So he is the shepherd, yes, but he's also the door. He uses different illustrations in these passages. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, if you don't understand the metaphor, you don't understand the principle of the, of the sheep sleeping there at night, going out to eat, you might get troubled by this in and out idea. You go, ooh, in and out, in and out, you don't like that. They talk about being in and out of salvation, in and out of eternal life, in and out of of, uh, being saved and going to heaven when you die. No. You're still a sheep, whether you're in or you're out, but you're a sheep that's protected and resting at night when you're in. And you're a sheep that's out being fed, being watered, being exercised in the presence of your shepherd while you're out. And you're both in and out at different times as he directs you. So I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will go be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came. They may have life and they may have it abundantly. Not just staying in the fold 24 hours a day, but actually going out and eating and drinking and exercising and, and all of that. Now, in the process of doing that, of course, what happens if you've got a hundred of those sheep and they're all out there and they're on the fields and you're watering them and they're feeding in the green pastures and everything's great. Tastiest grass in the world mm, makes me hungry. Eating grass. All right. And then, that's why I'm thankful to be a carnivore. All right. And now, you're, now you're, you come to bring them in at the night. And as you're bringing them in at night, and you're standing there with the doorkeeper, and you're counting, you know, one, two, three, counting sheep, not falling asleep. And you get to 99, and you're like, uh-oh, wait a minute. I lost one. I lost one. Okay. That's the picture here in Matthew 18. So, when he leaves the 90 and 9, they're not abandoned. They're not, you know, prey to the wolves. They're not in danger. They are in the pen for the night. But the shepherd can't go home to his wife and kids and family and all that, or whatever he's got, what else he's got going on. He joined a bowling league or whatever. He can't. He's not off duty for the night. Why? He's got one sheep that's out there somewhere. And he, he can't wait till morning, and he can't just say, oh, well, maybe he'll show up tomorrow when I take the sheep back out. He's going to go out and get that sheep tonight before it becomes food for one of the, the nocturnal, prowling, predator-type beasts. So, that's the picture. He leaves the 99 on the mountains, and he goes and he searches for the one that is trying. He's got a late night ahead of him till he finds that sheep. Does that make sense? Alright. Leaving the 99 on the mountains does not risk them in the man's absence. Point six. Bringing back the lost is a prime shepherding activity. <coughs> Bringing back the lost is a prime shepherding activity. And we've got scads of shepherding passages in the scriptures. I'll just give you a highlight of them on the screen. Including, of course, Psalm 23, which we've cited a number of times already this morning. Green pastures, still waters, lie down to rest. All the principles there of Psalm 23. We'll look at it. Jeremiah 40 has a shepherding application in verses 6 and 7. Ezekiel 34. It's a powerful shepherding passage. And uh, not for the least of reasons, because it pronounces woe upon shepherds that fall short. It's a violent passage of wrath of divine wrath, the shepherds that aren't up to speed. Matthew 12, we've already had a shepherding text in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12 verses 11 and 12. Of course, there's the Good Shepherd passage of John 10 verses 11 through 18 and then there's the uh, remarkable passage in 1 Peter 2:25 that reminds us that Jesus Christ is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. 1 Peter 2:25. Now, I'm going to say some things, and we'll spend our remaining time here on shepherding. Um, Sheep is a metaphor, of course. And when you relate a metaphor to reality, um, you're not talking about sheep. You're talking about people. And a shepherd can go find a lost sheep and bring the sheep back. Pick up the sheep, carry it back against the sheep's will. Okay? Because sheep don't have volition anyway. (laughs) Alright? The shepherd has 100% absolute sovereignty over that sheep. And animals are not in the moral realm of God's creation. It's only angels and humanity that are the moral realm of God's creation that have the volitional capacity to obey or rebel, and so forth. What I'm saying is that with a sheep, in the metaphor, a shepherd can go out there, pick up that little rascal, and bring him back, whether he wants to or not. The metaphor, though, when you carry it across into reality, is a different thing. Because when you're talking about people, okay, and then in a local church, you've got a shepherd and you've got a flock. okay, and you talk about people... What do you do with a lost sheep in a local church? Who's wandering? They're out there planaoing. Okay? The shepherd can't go out there, tie a rope around them, lug them over the shoulder, and bring them back to church on a Sunday morning. The shepherd might want to. (laughs) But the shepherd can't. All right, and you see the difference? Because in the human realm, Galatians 6 tells us, we operate under the laws of sowing and reaping. And people that make those decisions to leave the sheepfold face the consequences. All right? And so, shepherding in the uh, aspect of bringing back the lost, and also Binding up the broken, healing the sick. There's a, there's a realm of activity that a shepherd has to do. A shepherd is a part bodyguard, part soldier, part veterinarian, part all kinds of stuff, right? There's, there's medical things, there's binding up of, of wounds, there's all kinds of things that happen. And in the, in the human realm, in the realm of, of local churches and pastors and, and congregation members and all that, the, the metaphor becomes a, a prayer application. How does the binding take place? Through prayer. How does the bringing back take place? Through prayer. How does the, uh, the uh, discipline take place? Through prayer. Allowing the ministry of the word of God to do his work. So you'll see what I mean here in a moment. All right. Let's look at some of these. There's a, there, there is a seven and an eight coming up, but uh, we'll save that until we really get a handle on all this shepherding stuff. So Psalm 23. Psalm 23. You have it memorized? I got to teach this in Kiev, and, um, and they loved it. This was uh, three years ago when I was there for the very first time, and teaching um, Hebrew poetry to Russian speakers in Ukraine, which was a lot of fun. The Ukrainians, by the way, are trying to get their language back. Ukrainian is not the same as Russian. And um, during the Soviet era, Ukrainian was pretty well stamped out and people were forced to learn Russian. Well, now that the Soviet Union has fallen and Ukraine has their nation back, they, uh, they're really working hard to resurrect the Ukrainian language. And it's an interesting thing to, to watch happen. But most of the students in Ukraine actually uh, don't speak Ukrainian or if they do, they're, they're much more comfortable speaking Russian. So it's an interesting thing. Anyway, I was asked to go over there and teach Hebrew poetry, and so I'm teaching Hebrew poetry in English to the Ukrainians as it was translated into Russian, and it made for a very interesting period of time. <laughs> anyway, one of the things they loved about it, though, and I was able to communicate it. I'll bring it up here on the screen for you to, to show you, is the. Uh, The beauty of the Hebrew language and the aspect of poetry, this is like like Psalm 119 we just went through and different things. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's nine words. All right. Now, after you get past the introduction here, which says a Psalm of David, that's right here, Mismurla David. What we have as prescripts in the English are actually in the Hebrew text. So, Mizmor Lodavid is a Psalm of David. Then you actually have, I'll change colors. Verse 1 The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Five words. In Hebrew, it's two words. Yahweh Rotni. Yahweh Rotni. Two words. The Lord is my shepherd. And then I'll switch colors. See, the Ukrainian kids, they love this. I shall not want. Four words. Again, two words. Lo echsar. Yahweh ro'i lo echsar. Four words. To get nine in English. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside quiet waters. Again, a dozen words or more. Short phrases in Hebrew. That's the, that's the beauty of Hebrew poetry, is that it's Short. An economy of words. All right. Anyway, it's fun stuff to look at. What does the Lord do as my shepherd? I shall not want. The shepherd makes provision for the sheep. The sheep with a shepherd has no want, has no lack, has no deficiencies. A sheep without a shepherd, of course, has every deficiency in the world. What keeps a sheep from being deficient is the shepherd. I mean, you can't get more simple than that. That is straightforward. What breaks my heart is this movement in place, uh, sweeping the country in a lot of ways, is this this no pastor, no uh, no church building, meet-in-a-home fellowship aspect. Now, I'm, not, I'm not negative on meeting in homes. I'm not negative on if believers want to meet in homes, if you want to have a Bible study, if you want to do whatever you want in a home, that's great that is perfectly acceptable it's legitimate you can fellowship over the word you can you can have believers in your home and you can do all of that but you're not a church unless there is a gifted and trained poimain kai pastor teacher it's not a church you can call it a church but see the problem is these home groups and they'll t- they'll tell you this to their to your face they'll say oh no 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 we don't want the the one man in charge mentality They say, oh, no, no, that's not New Testament. New Testament, everybody had a say. Well, let's look at that New Testament again, shall we? In any event, God has always had a delegated chain of command. And it started off with apostles. Moving pastors around from church to church, appointing elders, making decisions. Apostles had sovereign authority in the the New Testament. God always has a top-down chain of command. All right. Anyway, side trip. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Makes me lie down. The shepherd directs where the resting must take place. The shepherd directs where the sheep needs to be because the sheep is stupid. All <laughs> right? He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Not because I've earned it. Not because I deserve it. For his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, the rod was there for discipline. The rod was there to strike. The rod was there to smack that sheep back into place. And the uh, staff had, there's a reason why the staff has a hook on it. That hook at the top, uh, grab that sheep around the, the the front quarters there and bring him in. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And there's an idea. Why do we eat in front of the enemies? Why don't we just go away and have nothing to do with those enemies? Well, there's a testimony we want to maintain. Anyway, tremendous shepherding application there in Psalm 23. We also have Jeremiah 40. So anyway, you got all the pictures there, right? Rest, food, water, protection, safety. All of those are principles that ought to take place in a local church, and it's the shepherd's job to get it done. Part of when we train pastors, when we train Cliff, we train Bob, we train LaRosa, we train any of these guys. Skylar and Casey and Fallon, all these guys. Did I say Fallon? Casey and Sean. Okay? The shepherd heart. The shepherd heart. We've got to train that. Because we can we can If we train a teacher who maybe is the most brilliant at Greek, most brilliant at Hebrew, and he can outline a a paragraph like there was no tomorrow, but if he doesn't have a shepherd's heart, we're we're not accomplishing anything. We're going to send out a bunch of prideful teachers out there that aren't shepherds. And as a consequence, we're going to destroy some flocks along the way. We don't want to do that. All right, Jeremiah chapter 40. (coughs) Jeremiah chapter 40. And, uh, oh, was this what I was looking for? That may not be what I was looking for. Uh, let's do Ezekiel 34. <coughs> Ezekiel 34. I know Ezekiel 34 is right. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe! That's bad news. Any message of woe is not a happy message. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock. The primary thing you want to learn about shepherding is it's not selfish. The needs of the sheep come first. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. See, you start thinking, man, this shepherding is a pretty good gig, right? Because you just kill whatever sheep you want to kill, eat whatever you want to eat, get some good lamb chops out of it, take the wool whenever you feel like it. You can stay nice and warm anytime you want. Because all those wool coats are just sitting out there, right? So just shear whatever you want to shear, make whatever you want to make. It's not about you. Now, a shepherd does it's, it's, a shepherd does get to eat and drink and clothe himself and all that. There is a benefit to the shepherd, but that's not the purpose for shepherding. These shepherds, though, that's all I could think about was themselves. Eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. See, if you're selfish... You don't care about the sick sheep. You don't, you don't care. Who cares? Big deal. So he's sick. Not my problem. Right? You don't care about the sick sheep because the sick sheep can't do anything for you. So well, what does he do for me anyway? He's worthless. This fat juicy one over here though, that's the one I like. Because that's the one I can eat. I don't want to eat the sick one. I might get sick. <laughs> and the wool looks nasty anyway. I don't want to... Try to make a code out of that. So if all you are is selfish, then the only sheep you care, care about are the ones that can benefit you. What kind of shepherd is that? See, it's like these real slick, high-dollar uh, televangelist kind of guys. And they show favoritism in their, amongst their contributors. Well, the book of James warns about showing favoritism to the rich guys. Right? And saying, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to be a church that focuses on the rich guys. The guys that, that give the money, they give the big con- uh, contributions. But the poor and the sick and the needy, I will not have time for them. They're not doing anything for us anyway. You see where that takes place? I'm not just making this stuff up. This stuff is the, the, the tragic downfall of much of, you know, the marketing approach to... Uh, 21st century American Christianity. So you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. Notice it's interesting. There's both scattered and lost. Two different categories of those that are departed. Some departed because they were scattered, some departed just because they got lost. Do you know the difference? They both need to come back. Do you know the difference between the sickly, the diseased, and the broken? Well, you, you better because one category you're supposed to strengthen, one category you're supposed to heal, and one category you're supposed to bind up. You got to know your first aid. You got to know your your the application of it. See, if uh, if somebody's not breathing, you don't want to put a tourniquet on their leg. Right? You got to restore the breathing. You got to clear the airway. You got to you got to maybe mouth to mouth or whatever it takes to restore the breathing. Okay, clear the airway. If there's something lodged in there, then the Heimlich maneuver or whatever it takes to dislodge the the blockage. Finger sweep or whatever you got to do. You got to get the airway clear. And likewise, if the breathing okay. And, uh, and, their, and their leg is bleeding, and, and, and profusely they're going to bleed out or whatever. You've got to get the tourniquet on the leg. It doesn't do you any good, if their leg is, is bleeding out, to, uh, to, to give them mouth-to-mouth. The mouth. <laughs> they're breathing just fine. <laughs> All right? So you see how I'm illustrating this. If, if they're lost, that's one thing. If they're sick, that's one thing. If they're broken, that's one thing. You've got to know what it is so you can treat it. If you mix-match incorrectly, then you just do more harm than good. You're not benefiting that sheep. That's why you got to have the discerning eye as a shepherd. So, uh, nor have you brought back, uh, sought for the lost, but with force and severity you have dominated them. Force and severity are never <laughs> appropriate shepherding methods, right? And that's true for earthly shepherds. That's true for pastors of a local church. That's true for husbands, As husbands, you are shepherds. Tending the souls of your wife and your children. So, uh, how far do you get with force and severity? Right? You're the king of your castle. Stomp your foot. That's not shepherding. You're not a tyrant. So they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And I love that phrase, lack of a shepherd. Because... The non-shepherding shepherds aren't shepherds. There were shepherds there. The shepherds of Israel and God pronounced woe on them and they were doing all these horrible things They were negligent in their duties. And he says, if you're negligent, you're not shepherding. They're, they don't even have a shepherd. So lack of a shepherd, they became food for every beast of a field and were scattered. My flock, see that's the key, it's not The shepherd's flock, it's God's flock. The shepherds are simply working for the, the sheep owner, that is God himself. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God. As I live. Do you know what that is? That's the language of a vow. That's the language of a vow. As I live. So how long is that? Forever. That's right as I live, takes the duration of God's existence, the eternal life of God's essence, and brings it into focus as the guarantee of His promise. This is a vow. When you say your marriage vows, what do you say? So long as we both shall live. Does that mean anything? Or is it just stupid flowery words in a wedding service? Right? And you say, why doesn't the pastor just quit? going on and on. Come on, we want to cut cut the cake and start the party. The words mean something. So long as you both shall live is a vow where you are tying in the duration of your life to this wedding relationship. It's the language of a vow. God here says, so long as I live, as I live. It's the language of a vow. Now, God can't lie to begin with. (laughs) It is impossible for God to lie. God is truth. Everything he says is true. But when he makes a vow, how powerful is that? It's like omnipotence times two. It's like doubling up. You've got a God who cannot lie, but then he takes a vow. I think that's pretty, uh, pretty certain, don't you? <laughs> right? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely. So he takes a vow, ties it to his own eternal life, and then doubles it with Surely. Because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. My shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God Behold, I am against the shepherds. (laughs) That's bad news. (laughs) That's like saying, uh, you know, we're now enemies. You're not on my side. I'm against you. That's bad news. That's like whoever wishes to make himself a friend of the world is at enmity with God. You really want to put yourself in that position? I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them. Make them cease from feeding sheep. In other words, you're fired. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. See, the real problem wasn't that they were out there and scattered in the mouths of the wolves and the beasts. Truth was, they were already in danger when they were in the mouths of the shepherd who was a tyrant and not caring for them, not tending them. Anyway, it goes on in verses 11 and following where he says that he's going to take care of it. He's going to do what they should have been doing. He's going to feed them, he's going to water them, he's going to bind them up, he's going to, he's going to uh, heal them, he's going to bring them back to lost. He's going to take care of those sheep. So we got a, a tremendous shepherding uh, application there. Matthew 12, oh, I'm out of time. Matthew 12, John 10, 1 Peter 2. So you get me started on shepherding and we can go for days. Okay, I'm going to hold off on Matthew 12 until next week. We'll come back to Matthew 12 and get that. Um because that's another parable, and that's another. It works out well with our, our text in chapter 18. Let me close with Philippians chapter two. It's not on the screen, but I'll give you one anyway. Extra credit, no extra charge for Philippians chapter two. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? Gentiles eat popcorn. Galatians two. I'm a Philippians two. Pork chops. Gentiles eat pork chops. They might also eat popcorn, I don't know, but they eat pork chops. All right, Philippians 2. And I want you to see when Timothy was prepared for ministry. Now, his mom was a Jew, his dad was a Greek, so he probably already had his Greek and Hebrew down. And he learned from Paul about teaching Bible class. But he says in Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Notice how this relates to what we were just reading in Ezekiel 34. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. He says, I can't send Luke. I can't send Titus. I can't send Epaphroditus. I can't send Aristarchus. I can't send Demas. All these other guys that trained under Paul. He says, the only one that's ready that has the shepherd heart is, is Timothy. For they all seek after their own interests. All of them, even Luke, even Titus at this point. They had not yet grown in their training to avoid the Ezekiel 34 selfish snares. But Timothy was ready. The youngest of them was ready. For they all seek after their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Why was Timothy the greatest? Because he was the humblest. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. All right, so there's an application in it there. We've got some studies in Timothy coming up, and I just want to give you that as a preview. All right, we'll come back one week from today. We'll get you the Matthew reference, the John reference, the First Peter reference. We'll have some more things to say about discipline or about shepherding. We'll also talk about the rejoicing, because this rejoicing, hooray, the sheep's come back. We'll talk about that, because that's not license to go ahead and be a wandering sheep out there, okay, so that you can make God more happy when you come back. No. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll make very clear that that's not a license to uh, make God more happy by being a wandering sheep for a while. No. All right. Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for the time together. We thank you uh, for this holiday uh, season, Father, folks that have the day off and the opportunity to join us today. We just thank you for being faithful in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.